So over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Jesus um, on the way to the cross. Last week, we looked at um, this interaction between him and Pilate, right? Pilate was interrogating him. And then there's these Jewish leaders on the outside who are pursuing his death, a very specific kind of death, his crucifixion. We had uh, looked at how both Jew and Gentile had rejected the truth. That's what I talked about last week. And in so doing so, by rejecting the truth, they had in turn rejected Jesus. Because he had said that he had come to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. That's what he said. So it brought this question about how could anybody reject Jesus? But we know that coming into the world as the light of the world, men did reject him. Because the Bible tells us that instead of choosing the light, men loved the darkness. Right towards the beginning of the book of John, we hear about this rejection of Jesus. Uh, John chapter 1, 10 and 11 states, He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. They did not receive him. They've rejected him. But even though the Jewish leaders, they desired to see Jesus crucified, they had to bring him to the prefect of the province, right? Pontius Pilate. And Pilate, we read last week, found no basis for a charge against him. Okay, he's innocent. He can go home. Story's over. Right? No, the story is not over. In fact, the horrors of that day have just begun. Jesus is on this path to the cross. And I I want to remind you, as I did a couple of weeks ago... That Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. Even in this interaction with these men, Jesus, if you look at his actions, he does not try to escape. He does not try to save his life. He does not back down out of fear or intimidation. He does not cower. He is a man on a mission. And his mission is full of love. I told you last week there were seven scenes in this one setting. Uh, I talked a little bit how there's this uh, outside to inside, outside to inside interaction. Outside where Pilate converses with the Jewish leaders. Inside where Pilate interrogates Jesus. Last weekend we looked at the first three scenes. This weekend we were going to look at the final four. But instead of walking through it verse by verse, kind of like I've done the last couple of weeks, we're going to change up things a little bit uh, this, w- uh, this week. I loved Monty Python, so... Uh, now for something completely different, if you've ever seen one of those inappropriate movies. <laughs> but God put a message on my heart, and I want to share it with you today. But first, would you bow your heads with me, and I'm going to pray for us. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for what your son has done for us. Uh, this is an incredible message of love um, that he has laid down his life for us so that we might have eternal life. It is an incredible message, truly the good news. Teach us, Lord, this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So grab your Bibles. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 19. Pilate, at the end of chapter 18, has just asked the question, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. No, not him. Give us Barabbas. And instead of reading today's passage, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to show you a video. It's uh, a film called The Gospel of John and how uh, this passage is portrayed in that film. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him whipped. 
The soldiers made a crown out of thorny branches and put it on his head. Then they put a purple robe on him and came to him and said, Long live the king of the Jews. And they went up and slapped him. Pilate went back out once more and said to the crowd, Look, I will bring him out here to you to let you see that I cannot find any reason to condemn him. Look, here is the man. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Take him then and crucify him. I find no reason to condemn him. We have a law that says he ought to die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back into the palace and asked Jesus, Where do you come from? But Jesus did not answer. He will not speak to me. Remember, I have the authority to set you free and also to have you crucified. You have authority over me only because it was given to you by God. So the man who handed me over to you is guilty of a worse sin. When Pilate heard this, he tried to find a way to set Jesus free. If you set him free, that means you are not the emperor's friend. Anyone who claims to be a king is a rebel against the emperor. When Pilate heard these words, he took Jesus outside and sat down on the judge's seat in the place called the Stone Pavement. In Hebrew, the name is Gabbatha.
It was then almost noon of the day before the Passover. Pilate said to the people, Here is your king. Kill him. me to crucify your king. The only king we have is the emperor. Then Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. Well, anytime you watch a movie such as this or Mel Gibson's The Passion or if any of you have seen the Jesus film, I hope you'd realize these are just attempts at showing what actually happened. Modern day attempts, right? To visualize the text. And though this clip isn't perfect by any means, I think it does a good job of conveying the emotion of the scene. Do you feel that? That the hate that existed in the crowd, the interesting dynamic of this judge who finds no fault in Jesus, but who begins to feel that political pressure from this unruly section of the Roman Empire, the Jews who are now even questioning Pilate's loyalty to Caesar. Now, Pilate, I believe in a form of mockery, he tells these Jewish leaders in verse 14 that this battered, abused man wearing this crown of thorns and this robe is their king. He's their king. Now, Pilate doesn't see Jesus as the king. And now he's forced the Jews to deny him as king when he states, here is your king. They shout, crucify him. Pilate responds, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. If anything, they should have responded, we have no king but God. But instead, they fail so miserably. Every Passover, they would sing or pray this. They would say, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Besides you, we have no king, redeemer or savior, savior, no liberator, deliverer, provider, none who takes pity in every time of distress and trouble. We have no king but you. When God gave the Israelites the king they wanted, they were seen as exercising kingship in the name of the Lord. For the Jewish people, their hope was for a redeemer to come, a Messiah who would come to be king like David. But they had just cast aside hundreds of years of waiting. Do You see that they have proclaimed Caesar as their king. It's a tragic scene. Like I said earlier, before he came to his own, but yet those who were his own did not receive him. So here he is. He's surrounded by his opponents. And I have a question for you. I would like for you and for myself to put ourselves into this scene. Look at Jesus. And as you look at Jesus, what do you feel? When you see him as they saw him, what is your response? What do you say? We just saw in this video clip that when they bring out Jesus after being flogged, verse 6 says, as soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. In your notes, if you're taking notes today, it says, what is our response when we see Jesus? What is our response when we see Jesus? Is it unbelief? Is it rejection? Is it anger? When we look into his eyes, are we filled with hate? Do we despise him, desiring to get rid of him? As soon as we can. 
Or is it closer to James Smith's response to Jesus when he writes this? Listen up. He says this about Jesus. Jesus, who died for thy sins, is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We can never ascribe too much to Jesus, but he is worthy also to be, to be believed in preference to Satan, unbelief, the world or appearances, to be trusted with all for all before all, to be loved more than any other in opposition to any that would rival him, to be followed wherever he may lead us through evil report or good report, to be preferred over ease, pleasure, wealth, health, preferred to anything and everything. Jesus is worthy to be our example, our confident, our king, and our all. He is worthy of all he requires, all we can give, all his people have done for him or suffered in his cause. So when you see Jesus, what is your response? Number two, do you believe He is the son of God. Do you believe he is the son of God? From the very beginning of the gospels, we see Jesus proclaimed as such. If you look at the beginning of the gospel of Luke, I'd like to read you verses 26 to 35. Listen up. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will not end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. John the Baptist testifies about Jesus being the Son of God. Martha, Lazarus' sister, when when Lazarus has died and they ask Jesus to come, uh, Martha declares him as the Son of God. Uh, From that passage, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He asked Martha, do you believe in this? Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God who is to come into the world. Later in the New Testament, we're told that the apostle Paul, right after his conversion experience and after his recovery from blindness, we are told that straight away in the synagogues, he proclaimed Jesus that he is the son of God. But what do you say this morning? What do you say? Do you proclaim Jesus as the son of God? Or do you respond like the Jewish leaders responded, refusing to believe in him, denying him, saying that he must die because of this claim to be the son of God? Some of you in this room, I mean, you wouldn't go as far as, you know, crucifying him. But on the other side of the spectrum, I'd say some of you have never really proclaimed him as the son of God, like Martha, like John the Baptist, like the Apostle Paul. A very popular attitude, a prevailing attitude, I would say, in, uh, towards Jesus is this, that he was a good man who taught good moral values. He's just a really good moral teacher. 
It's an attitude that exists in our churches today. We go to church so that we can be nicer, so we can learn how to follow the rules. That's why we want our kids to go, right? And so we can all get along. And that's crazy talk. I'm just here to tell you that is crazy talk. If you are following Jesus for those reasons, this might sound harsh, but you are not following the real Jesus. Jesus stirs up the pot. He brings dissension. He is the dividing line. He claims to be the only way to God. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Matthew 10, 34 through 36 does not look or sound like a good moral teacher. I'd like to read it to you. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Household. He calls the Pharisees hypocrites. He healed on the Sabbath, right? Knowing the offense, the great offense that it would cause the Jewish leaders. He sends demons into a herd of pigs who go down a bank, go into the water and die. Obviously not too concerned about the farmers who actually own the pigs. He tells us to be first, you must be least. To be the greatest, you must be a servant. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He tells the man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back, who looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Jesus was radical, my friends. He was either the son of God or he was a crazy man. And many of you have heard this quote. I want to read it because it is so good. It comes from C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. Just a side note, if you've never read Mere Christianity, it's a wonderful book. It kind of just tells you the ABCs and the one, two, threes on what it means to be a Christian. But C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. And this is the quote. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. End quote. C.S. Lewis says that is the one thing we must not say. A man who has the man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, he goes on to write. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I love that quote. That's good. So the question is, do you believe he's the son of God? And finally, number three. Is Jesus your king? And I want to spend some time on this. You, you see that mentioned a lot in this uh, video clip that we showed. In fact, the whole thing of kingship is it's made a mockery of. But is Jesus your king? From an early age, I remember my father asking me this question often. My father, he's right there in the second row. But he asked me this question. Is Jesus your king? Is he your Lord? Is he your master? Danny, is Jesus your king? 
Is he your Lord? Is he your master? Why would he ask this question? Because my father, he saw so many people around him in his, in his church and in his school. He was a teacher who proclaimed to be Christians, saying that they had accepted Jesus as their savior. Very excited, happy and thankful to be saved. Saved from the shortcomings and their failures. Saved from an eternity away from God in hell. And he had conversed with so many people who had accepted this salvation. But they were quick to accept a savior much slower to serve a king. Quick to accept a savior much slower to serve a king. They had accepted him as savior, but not confessed him as Lord. I mean, sure, they sang worship songs about him being a king, maybe even taught a Bible study about his kingdom. And I believe if confronted directly with the question, is Jesus your king? They would have certainly said yes. But the lives they were living did not reflect that of someone who was serving Jesus as their king. Again, this passage, everyone in this scene, they have decided, right, that Jesus is not their king. We have no king but Caesar, they shouted. But for us today, I hope that we have a different response. I hope that our response is, yes, yes, Jesus is my king. And if that's our response, then our lives need to show that reality. We, we should be changed by that reality. And that's a question for, for me to you. How is your life different because of God's reign in your life? How is it different? Has how you spend your free time changed or how you spend your money changed? How you treat people, what you value in life, what you find important? Have those things changed as you continue to serve God and his kingdom? I hope the answer to all those questions is yes, a resounding yes. But unfortunately, what my dad experienced is very common. It's a very common experience. We accept what Jesus has done for us. We take this offering of eternal life and we kind of just put it on our hip and we go on like nothing ever happened. Right. We live the exact same way as we did before we were Christians. Kind of like nothing ever happened. What foolishness. What foolishness. If Jesus is our Lord, then you serve him. You do what he says. No ifs, ands, and buts. If he is your king, then you serve him. And I promise you, serving God, is, it will disrupt your plans. As you obey his commands in your life, it will disrupt your day. Though the Bible tells us that his commands are not burdensome, they are at times inconvenient. Do you know what I mean? Have you felt that way before? Chapter 3 of uh, 1 John tells us that believers keep the commands of God and do what pleases Him. Verse 23 says, And this is His command. Listen up. To believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He has commanded us. Obey His commands. Believe in Jesus. Love God and love others. And I want to close with this. One of the beautiful things that separates the kingdom of God from all other kingdoms is His love. It's God's love, and it's the love of his followers. We are called to be members of his kingdom and to love God and to love others. And it is a crazy love. It is an inconvenient love. Sometimes this love involves having that two-in-the-morning phone conversation with a friend who is in need. You know, sometimes that love involves helping your pastor move to Clarkston on your day off, which several of you did. 
or visiting someone in the hospital, going to a memorial service, fixing somebody a meal, or giving money to a family in need. Sometimes it's a crazy love where you have to forgive someone who is not easy to forgive. Sometimes offering the other cheek after the other cheek has already been struck. It's a love that lays down your life for another. Now let's look back again at that passage that we've just walked through today. In this scene, it is void of love. Void of love. Void of love. Except for one man. Jesus. The love of God is on display through his son, Jesus Christ. He is showing the world what true love looks like. He is teaching us, his followers, what sacrificial love looks like. And as we grow in that love, as we become more like Jesus, I want to encourage you, it should be changing how we treat one another. It should be changing and affecting our relationships. Philippians chapter 2 talks about this relationship side of things. Verses 5 through 11. It states, in our relationships with one another, we should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. Man, listen up, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. That's an incredible passage. I love that passage. And it it talks about having the same mindset as Christ Jesus. How could we ever have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Well, we must submit to his authority in our lives. Allowing him. Allowing him to teach us by his Holy Spirit. How to live. How to love. That when we see him. And when we hear him. Our response would always be. To serve him. And to obey his commands. We need to think about that. Think about your own life. Think about your response to Jesus in your life. How are you responding to him? Honestly, think about that. Are you cursing his name or are you bowing down at his feet? Do you make fun of him? Are you, are you making fun of Jesus in your conversations, in your Facebook posts, Twitter, in your workplace, in your living room? And what you're watching, what you're saying, are you making fun of him? Or are you exalting him as your king? And if you find yourself this morning opposing him, I want you to hear this. If you find yourself against God, angry towards God, I want to encourage you in this. I want to remind you that your anger towards him does not change his love towards you. See, as you shout at him and you yell at him, he is not turned away. Did you know that? He's still listening. He does not waver in his love for you. God wants you. He does. Peter tells us that the Lord's patience in his returning means salvation. He wants you. He loves you. But there will be a day when Jesus comes back again. We believe that Jesus is the soon and coming king. It's one of the four squares of the four square doctrine. And there's going to be a day when you and I will stand before him. 
My prayer for you this morning is that as you and I stand before Jesus, He's going to see us as His sons and His daughters who have been faithful in their service, not to ourselves, but to His kingdom. And I want that for every one of us in this room. I love you, but God loves you even more, and He wants you. He wants you. He loves you. So as we conclude this morning, I know I've asked a lot of questions. I'd encourage you, take that sheet home. I want you to look at it this week. And in how you're living your life, I want how you're living your life to compare to those questions. Because it's so easy as Christians just to say the Christian answer. And when we're standing before God, it's not like, well, you said the right answer. That's not what he cares about. He cares about your heart. He cares about your life. He cares about the fruit of your life. So as we uh, conclude this morning, I just encourage you to take that home and look at those questions. I want to share a video with you. I love this video. Many of you have already seen it before, but it's just a wonderful example to me of who Jesus is. The next few Sunday mornings, it just gets more intense. It really does. We're going to go to the cross and see Jesus crucified. But then it's not over at that point, right? As Christians, we believe in the resurrection. So we're also going to see him resurrected from the grave and we're going to see him as the risen Lord. Truly the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It is going to be good. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you
you know him? Well, his light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. That's my king. Amen.